0: that you would just draw us closer as you continue to pursue us. We ask that blessing on our time together tonight in Jesus' name. Bit easier than you would think, only because Job is 42 chapters long, uh, the majority of it is written in Hebrew poetry, and the interesting thing about, anybody that likes poetry in here, anyone like that? Okay. Uh, oh, oh, I see, oh, yes, I, I see someone that likes poetry in here, yes, one of my academy teachers, maybe. Hey, has anyone ever been, side note, really quick, before I get going, total random, like, bonus points. Have any of you ever been noticed, like, there was somebody you always looked up to or thought, like, they're super smart and I'll never be smart like them. And then one day you're in a position where you're doing something and they're sitting there like they're actually going to learn from you and it's kind of terrifying all at the same time. That's how I feel like at the moment because my English teacher's in here and I was just talking about poetry. <laughs> <laughs> from Academy, that's awesome. But um, uh, that's fantastic. We learned a lot of things in that class, including if you look at the National Enquirer, you will never find a spelling mistake because that stuff's already unbelievable. So they can't ruin it by having you, like, anyway, we got three points it was so tantalizing. She's like, if you can find a spelling mistake in the National Enquirer, you'll get an extra point. And you're like, is she encouraging me to read the National Enquirer? But anyway, you know, you're looking through it, and you're like, I get <laughs> oh my okay, point. Okay, okay, anyway, okay. enough of suffering from high school. We're going to move to the suffering of Uh And then anyway, as I was saying, there is there poetry. The majority of it's written in poetry. And the interesting thing about poetry is there's lots of illusions and symbolism and, and, and flowery imagery. And so you kind of have to slow down and really look at it because you can say so much and yet so little all in the same time, and that's kind of what Job does. There's there's key points seven times to go through this. Well, oh. Uh, what we're going to try and do is we're actually going to approach this poetry, and uh, while we're going to look at some of the key segments of it, and I hope you will go look at the stuff that we don't get to cover, I'm going to try and summarize the main thing uh, that these characters are saying in probably you know 12 or 14 chapters worth of poetry, and they're really making three or four main points in the content of that. So for those of you who weren't here last night, again, we're going through the book of Job, I would welcome you. So they are recording these. You will probably want to go back and catch up anything you missed because we're going in order of the narrative. And the disclaimer is Job doesn't give answers at the beginning of the book, and it doesn't even get answers in the middle of the book. So we're still near the beginning of the book. So if you're here thinking you're going to get all the answers tonight, <laughs> you won't. Okay, but we're building to the answer, and we need to see this foundation before we can build the house. So that's what we're going to do. And tonight, we get to hit, last night, uh, as way of review, we saw the first, of the three main characters, really. the three main characters in Job and four supporting characters. And the main three are Job, which means persecuted. That's his name. Isn't that a great name? <laughs> persecuted. Um, yeah, so you get Job, uh, whose job was persecution, apparently. And then you get the Lord, or Yahweh, right? And then you get... Satan, which is not even really his name, in fact, we're going to get a different name for him later in the narrative, but it's, it's, really, it's really his title, Satan, from the Hebrew. It just means the adversary, what he does, and he shows up as a very adversarial character in the beginning of the book, right? And then everything falls apart for Job, and we saw that, but tonight, cheer up, it gets worse, okay? <laughs> we're going to hit the low point for Job tonight. <laughs> we're going to hit it where it, this is a very risky time for Job. In fact, this is probably the most at risk Both his faith and his life is in the narrative is what we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to talk about turmoil comes. But before we do that, I'm going to take a moment and just have one more word of prayer up front. I want to invite you where you are. If you would just bow your heads and ask the Lord to speak to your heart individually, that your heart would be open and your mind would be receptive to the message God has tailored prepared before you today. Pray for those around you that they would also receive a blessing. And while you're at it, go ahead and pray that I'm hidden behind the text and that we only see what the word would have for us. And after a few moments of silence, I'll bring us together out loud in a close of that prayer, and we'll get started with our message when turmoil comes. So let's just take a moment and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, there's a lot of suffering out there, and as has been said before, it bears repeating again, we're here at a church function, and that's usually the place where we put on our mask and don't deal with suffering. But thank you that you're not willing to put a mask on when you deal with us. You're willing to help, you're willing to heal, and you're willing to show us reality. So we now pray that the same spirit that inspired the words of Job would now instruct us as to their meaning, and that we would see you clearly. And that there would be hope in our lives where there may not be any. That we would see hints of the answers that we so desperately need. Guide us this evening, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles or your PowerPoint, by that I mean you power up the Bible app and you point to it with your finger, go to the book of Job, Job chapter 3. We only made it through two chapters last night because the first two chapters are really the narrative. They're in a narrative form. Now we move into the poetry. Now we deal into the substance of all the stuff's happened, so now how do you make sense of it, right? And we're going to pick up right with Job in Chapter 3. And again, as I said, I'm going to do my best to kind of summarize this poetry. I invite you to really take the time and go through this line by line yourself, but I'm going to try my best to take the eight months of study I was trying to do on this and condense it down for you. Uh, I'm the Cliff Notes, but you you can't write a paper on Cliff Notes, but this will at least help you know what you need to read. All right, anyway. Is that good? I said that for my teacher. Okay, anyway, here we go. <laughs> Chapter 3, starting in verse, starting in verse, oh, man, the stories I could tell about that. I don't need to get, it's a wonder that Pisgah didn't kick me out, right? <laughs> there was one point I plagiarized, like, that I was from a different country, but that's a totally different point. Anyway, uh, it's amazing that the Lord saves you from yourself. All right, Job 3, verse 1, here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amen, amen, yes, exactly. All right, and, and for patient teachers, all right, Job, afterwards, <laughs> talking about Job, not me, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Okay, this is a great start. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night which says, a boy is conceived. Oh, and may the day be darkness, and let not God above even care for it, nor light shine on it. And let darkness and black gloom claim it, and a cloud settle on it, and the blackness of the day terrify it. And as for the night, let it get even darker, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year, let it not come into the number of the months, Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. We'll come back to him later. Uh, Leviathan, let the stars of the twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light but have none, and let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. And whoo, you depressed yet? (laughs) Yeah, are you getting there? Right, because basically what he's saying is this. uh, I wish I had never been born. And that anyone never would have even thought of having me. Basically, maybe so cursed that even Leviathan, who we'll talk about later, uh, would even want to curse it. And, you know, being born didn't hide me from any trouble. You ever felt that way? You don't have to admit if you do. You ever been so depressed, you're like, I just wish I I hadn't been born. I I wish they never even thought of having me. That's where Job's gotten. You can kind of understand considering what he's been through. And now Job turns to two questions back to back. And if you notice anything so far in our study of Job, so far all the main characters have asked couplets of questions. Right? Satan asked two questions. God asked two questions. Now Job gets to ask his two questions. What is his two questions? What's his first two primary questions? Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I come forth from the womb and not expire? Okay. <laughs> Excelente. Wow, yeah, um, you could say he's depressed. But compared to the sets of questions asked up to this point, I guess we could say at least these aren't questions about someone's character, right? Does anyone know what I'm talking about, right? Because all the questions up to this point have been about character. So at least Job's just depressed and not asking questions of character. Or is he? Or is he? Right? The next several verses he goes on to ask why did his mother even raise him? Uh, why was he even raised because if he just died he wouldn't have had any pain and suffering Uh, he says even the wicked seem to get out of suffering when they die and kings and counselors you know they can die and be saved and death seems the only thing fair because everybody's equal in death rich poor slave free we're all equal we all die and we're all equal get the same pull out of ground right and then he asks his fourth question verse 20 and this is where you start changing the perception of what he's actually asking look at this in verse 20 Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul who longs for death and there is none and digs for it more than hidden treasures who rejoices greatly and exults when they find the grave? Why, and now he repeats it again and gives us more info. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Did you catch it? He's basically going, why is light and knowledge given to the sufferer? Why is one allowed to keep living when they want to die? I don't know what I've done to this point. And then 23 was the clencher. God has hedged me in. Do you see it? Basically, God has trapped me in suffering. His fourth question basically is exactly like the Lord's or what the Lord heard from Satan in the first two chapters. Because right? at present, this is a question of character, because who does he think's doing this to him? God, he goes, why have you hedged me in? Why have you locked me in? The word isn't very specific. A hedge is to surround someone. It's the idea of limiting your motion, of being able to do something. Um, you, you almost get the idea he's even saying, God, why won't you even make a decision about what to do with me? You just kind of trap me in this holding cell, this purgatory, if you will, and you won't do anything about it. I wish I could die. Won't you just kill me or in the pain do something, but I'm trapped. I'm hedged in. I can't escape. You get the idea that he thinks God can't even be bothered to decide to do anything about Job right now because he's got other things to do in the universe. You ever felt that way? If God would only listen to you, your problems could be solved, but he must be too busy in some galaxy somewhere solving something far more important than you, so you're just trapped in a holding cell of your pain. You just got to bite and bear it until maybe something happens. God's just abandoned him to suffer until God gets around to doing something. That's pretty bad. It's really bad. Isn't it? But can you blame him? Have you ever felt that way? You must not have lived very long if you haven't felt that way. We'll jump ahead because I want to hit all the stuff that Job says because really... I know the friends interject here. We're going to deal with the friends, but they all kind of. You ever been in one of those conversations where you know the other person isn't really listening? They just keep repeating the point they were wanting to make? Has anyone been in those kind of conversations? Okay, bro, whoa, don't look at a girl. Don't do that. Don't do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to go well for you. Um, <laughs> or vice versa. Girls, don't look at guys. Don't be like, okay, don't do that. But my point is that's kind of the conversations that break down here with Job and his friends is they basically all have a point they want to make, and they just keep repeating it no matter what the other one says. right? So we're just going to skip and keep saying what the one says at a time. So jump ahead to chapter 6 because Eliphaz, we'll deal with him later, interrupts, and then Job goes right back to what he was saying in Job 6. Verse 1, notice how he builds on this. Job answered, Oh, that my grief were actually lay, weighed, And laid in the balances together with my calamity. Basically what he's saying is God isn't taking my situation serious. If he'd only take notice and judge what's going on, he'd do something. He's ignoring it. Have you ever felt like God isn't taking you serious? That he doesn't understand what you're going through? That if he only knew what you were going through, he would do something about it. But he must not get it because he's left you in this pain. That's what Job's saying. If only look at verse four. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Who's he say is doing this to him? God. God is punishing me. God is hurting me. It's God doing this to me. felt that way? Maybe the pain's even God doing this to you. In fact, it gets worse for him. You look at verse 14. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friends so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, and which are turbid because of the ice and into the snow melts. Basically, have you ever felt this way? Not only is God against you, but your friends have abandoned you. Or maybe they've done one worse. They haven't abandoned you. They've stuck around and blamed you. (laughs) They piled it on. Oh, yeah, man, you were really dumb to do that. You an idiot. What were you thinking? Good grief, man. You ever had situations like that? Your friends just keep repeating what you did? (laughs) He's like, great. I can't even get comfort from my friends. (laughs) What friends? Yeah. (laughs) Are they friends? Well... Claim to be, he seems to see them that way. Now, watch this. Jump ahead, chapter 7. Keeps going. He makes another point. Chapter 7. Look at verse 10. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him any more. And then verse 11, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Basically, this is the tail end of Job saying this. I can't get answers. I can't get relief. So maybe at least I can wallow in my pain because maybe that will bring me some relief. Now, that's a very interesting statement. We don't often think about that, but isn't it true? Have you ever been in such pain? That you finally decide since there's no escape, you might find some comfort in your pain. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It's kind of a weird thing to think about, but we do that, don't we? You get so used to pain, you finally, there comes a point where it just snaps in our brain where we think, well, if this is my lot in life, then maybe I'm just going to be really good at pain. Uh, Now, you laugh, but isn't that what we do, right? And so you kind of take this weird twisted relief in your pain, Right, you're like, fine, I'm just going to embrace it and just get really good at suffering. Maybe you haven't, but Job's there. He's like, fine, I'll just make the most of it. I'll just be really good at suffering. I'll, uh, something good will come out of it. And now he's really wrestling with what can only seem logical. He thinks God's doing this to him, which means God's not looking out for him. And if God isn't looking out for him, and his friends, he said, isn't looking out for him, so other people aren't looking out for him, well, somebody's got to look out for you. So if God isn't doing it and other people aren't doing it, who's the only one left? You. No one else is looking out for you. You might as well look out for you. And I don't want you to miss this because of the Hebrew mind reading this, something would jump out to them. Notice that that verse, right, in 11, notice how he phrased what he was going to do. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I will, I will, I will. And what's interesting about this, you might not catch it just in Job, but if you've read any more of the Bible, this is echoing something out of Isaiah. And it's cluing the Hebrew reader in to something's getting really dark here. Because then there's a passage in Isaiah 14, some of you might know this, where it's talking about a creature that came from heaven, and he reached the point where he said, I will ascend, I will go, I will climb above the clouds, I will sit on the farthest side of the north, I will, I will, he says five times, I will do whatever. And of course, if you're Adventist, if you've been around this church long enough, you know that we understand that passage to be talking about Satan. Satan says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He says it five times in Isaiah 14. Anyone want to take a guess how many times Job says, I will, in this chapter? I just gave you the hint. Five. Now, if you're reading in English, someone might say, actually, I found a six. But if you pay attention to that six, he's making a statement about an occurrence, not what he's going to do. There's actually five I will do something statements. Even though there's six times it says, I will, in English, at least in my translation. So in other words, it's getting to the point, it's getting so dark in his pain that Job is, the text wants you to realize, he's wrestling now even with his faith to the point where, remember, we were told about Job in chapter 1, this guy was so blameless because who was he trusting in? God to take care of him, right? But now what is he wrestling with? Is God taking care of me? Do I need to take care of me? That's what he's wrestling with. This is the dark, I mean, you know, and when it comes to faith, this is this is really the thing. Do I this, this is the heart of the great controversy. Who's taking care of you? In fact, this is the first thing that Satan told to our parents in Eden at the tree. This was his this was his great debate. You might have missed it. You might have thought it was just about death. And he does talk about death. But remember, remember how he couches the death argument. Remember, the serpent is at the tree. Eve walks up. And do you remember the first thing the serpent said? Can you not eat of everything around here? You know, because he's subtle. Remember, it, the text warns us he's crafty. He's trying to go for something here. It's not, what he's saying is not quite exactly what he's going for. What he's basically saying is like, I thought you could eat of everything. The implication being, you can't eat anything around here. You're being, you're being restricted for no good reason. Right? And Eve tries to fight back, you know, first mistake. <laughs> you know, she's like, oh, no, 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 that's not true. We just, we, we can eat everything, just not this one tree, or we die. Right? And then the devil obviously says the lie we all are aware of. He's like, well, you won't die. Okay? Yes, he's talking about death, but he's also making another point. Who does Eve said said he, they would die if they ate it? God. And if he says, no, you won't die, what's he implying? God's lying. So now, follow him here. He's just started by saying God's keeping them from stuff. He's restricting them for no good reason. And now he's like, oh, you can't believe that he says he's not because he's lying to you. Now, here's the thing. If you think someone's keeping stuff from you for no good reason and you confront them about it and you think they're lying to you, are you going to take that well? Aren't you going to wonder why are you doing this to me? Now Eve's mind is exactly where the serpent wants, because now he can say the whole thing he was sitting at that tree to say. Because he says, why would God lie? Why would God restrict me? He says, because he knows that in the day you eat of it, you become like what? Like him. The implication being, who is God looking out for? Him. And not who? Not Eve or us through the great controversy. God's not taking care of you. He's not looking out for you. You need to do it yourself. And you know that Eve gets that because the very next text says when Eve saw that the fruit was good, the tree was good and the fruit was good and desirable to make who wise? Anyone, you don't have to have it memorized. I know this is in my brain, but right, Genesis three, says when she saw it in verse six, she saw it was desirable to make one wise. The only person she's thinking of is her at that moment. She's bought the lie. Yeah, she gives it to Adam later, but she's not thinking of Adam at this moment. She's thinking about, well, if God's not looking out for me, and the devil just slips in the lie, who needs to do it? Who better than you? And she goes, yeah, you know, that's, you're right. And she eats whatever it was. It was not an apple, okay? <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible does it say what fruit it was. For all I know, it was a chocolate tree. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be great if those existed? But anyway... <clears throat> Anyway, anyway, the point, and I apologize if that was a slightly sexist joke. I was not meaning that because I'm addicted to chocolate. But anyway, just, just four people are like, you think women did chocolate? Okay, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> got to be careful on that. <laughs> I don't know Here, here's the thing, right? She buys that lie. You've got to take care of yourself. And the great controversy is God is claiming that he's looking out for you, and the other side says, no, he only looks out for himself. So you need to look out for you. That's, that, that's the heart of it. And now here's Job, the one that at the beginning of the story said, I know God's looking out for me. And now he's reached in the depth of his despair and his depression and his misery. And he goes, you know what? I I think I need to take care of me. It's about time somebody did something about this. So I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's dangerously teetering and losing his faith. He's dangerously moving towards losing himself himself. But also, you also know he's in danger because don't miss this either. Job is experiencing, he, he's exhibiting a woe is me attitude. And yes, I mean, I know he's got reasons to be, but don't miss this. Just like in Isaiah 14, the text is hinting at us, just like in Isaiah 14, Satan was going, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Ezekiel 28 also clues us in that the reason he was doing that was because of something called Pride right what is pride okay pr- pride is thinking right in, in a twisted sense that you're you're so special that you deserve whatever or you're great or you're beautiful you're whatever right not that those things in and of themselves are bad but it's all about you right kind of thing like aha look what i can do here's the thing though and we don't often think about this and i've been guilty of this a woe is me attitude is actually pride in reverse i'm going to say that again Woe is me attitudes are actually pride in reverse. Because whereas the pride we normally think of is, look how special I am. Because I deserve this, that, and the other. And look how talented I am. We think of that. But woe is me, if you think about it, if you even think about what Job is saying, he's saying, I am so bad that everything in the universe is conspiring against me and me only. I, In a sense, he's so good at being bad. He's so good at needing to suffer. He's so special, the whole universe has orchestrated this to punish him and him only. It's really a form of pride. Uh, Do you see it? He's really on dangerous ground. See, because whereas Satan wanted to be all the way at the top of the mountain because he was so special, Job wants to be all the way down in the ground because he's so special. False humility. Verse 19 of chapter 7. Will you never turn your gaze away from me? Talking to God. Nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle, basically until I drown in my own suffering. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? See, the whole universe is revolving around him. So that I am a burden even to myself. Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquities? Calling his bluff. I thought you said you'd do these things. You're a liar. For now I will lie down. There's another I will. I will lie down in the dust. And you will seek me, but I will not be. Again and again and again, God is doing this to him. God is being unfair. He's being vindictive. He's being petty. He's echoing the words of Satan, though he doesn't know it. Job's only hope, he believes, is to start defending himself, to clear his own name, to fix his mess. And that's basically the summary of everything he now says here in chapter 9 and 10 and 12 13 and 14 and 16 and 17 and 19 and 21 and 23 and 24 and 26 to 31. That's all Job's talking about in poetry. That he is the target, that his only hope is to do something about it himself or to die. And that God has done it to him. But even though this is his low point, obviously you know, well, Job doesn't seem to give up. Well, he doesn't because in the midst of of him wrestling in the darkness of his pain on the verge of Satan or God, Satan or God, me or God. Right in the midst of it, he does, there's a flash of the spirit that rescues him right from the brink and gives him hope for the rest of the book, and it's in chapter 9. There quickly, Job chapter 9. In the midst of this depression and this wrestling with darkness, there's a flash that goes across his mind, and he says something that changes the narrative. Look at chapter 9 verse 24. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He's going on still about his depression, about everything so bad. He's blaming God again. He covers the face of its judges. He goes, there's no justice, there's no there's no help, there's no and then but then in the midst of this a glimmer an important question. If it is not he, then who is it? Wow. In the midst of it, he just knows it has to be God. And then this flash of brilliance across his mind. And he goes, wait a minute. If it's not he, then who is it? And this is really the first very helpful question Job's asked in all of his ramblings. Because one has to ask when we deal with the issue of suffering. I mean, I get it. When we suffer, we ask the question, why did God allow this? Right. And the church will try and give you an answer. You'll be like, fa- well, fa- yeah, yeah, yeah. You tell me it wasn't his will, but he knew it was going to happen and he didn't stop it. So he must have still willed it. Right. Don't we ask that? Right. He must have wanted it to happen because he didn't prevent it. Oh, yeah. OK, church. Yeah. You, t- you tell me that what he knows is not what he chose. But but yet yeah, yeah. you said God's nature is love. And how could it be loving to possibly allow this to happen? How could it be loving to not stop that? But note, either way in that line of questioning, we're not being very scientific. Because whether you ask the question, why did God do it, or why did he allow it, both questions are blaming God. And I don't know about you, I'm not necessarily against science. There's a lot of things about theory I don't like. But you know, when they say about science, the only way you can come to a conclusion is you have to have at least two possibilities of outcome. Right? You're not going to be a good, for example, you're not going to be a good crash investigator if the Federal Aviation Administration hires you to go investigate plane crashes or disasters and you don't believe planes exist? Right? Yeah, you can go out there and find seat cushions and tray back tables and masks and luggage and you know, really bad snacks and, and all of this other stuff, right? And if you don't believe planes exist, you're not going to recognize it as a plane crash. Part of the problem we have when dealing with suffering is if you prejudice the outcome, you can never find the truth. Because if God's to blame, then you've already come up with your conclusion. And what if it's not the answer? See, it's fair to ask if God is the cause of all of this. But truth also has to be open to the possibility that evil and suffering might have another cause. Job wants the truth, and so finally, in the midst of his darkness, he asks a really valuable question. Is it really coming from God? He just knew he was sure, but now in this moment, all of a sudden he asks, is this really coming from God? It's not him. Who is it? What could it be? You know, the book of Job's already hinted at the answer to that especially in the heavenly meetings that he doesn't know about, we do. True, we still don't have solid answers in the book, but Job's faith question is one that we have to ask if we've asked. Are we willing to examine the possibility that despite what your family has told you, maybe what your friends have told you, your teachers, the church, your preachers, whatever they may have told you, whatever they may have claimed that the Bible taught, Are we willing to entertain the thought that maybe, just maybe, God is not the source or the continued cause of the suffering in your life? Are we willing to entertain that question? Are you willing to set aside your need to blame God in the midst of your pain long enough to see if that blame really should be directed there? Long enough to see if God has a convincing answer as to why you have yet to find relief And why he has yet to act. Listen I get it. Listen the good news about the scripture. We're going to see this later in Job. God's big enough to take your questions. He's not mad at you for asking questions. In fact he's not even mad if you blame him. But what he's asking. What the book of Job is asking. What Job finally even in the midst of the darkness. Decided he had to ask. He had to be willing to set aside his blame of God. For even just the briefest of moments. To ask the question. What if it's not him? What would the answer be? Are you willing, whatever pain you're going through, whatever whatever brought you here, whatever the church has done or the family's done or not done or whatever it is you think you're trapped in that God's hedged you in, whatever that is, are you willing tonight to say, you know what? I'm not necessarily going to say God's not guilty. But I'm willing for this week, just this week, I'm just asking in these meetings, just this week, are you willing to say you know what I'm willing to to put my blame on the back burner for just long enough to see if there's a convincing answer that it might be coming from something else that it might be some other cause than God. And that's risky. And I know that's big, and I know that's asking a lot of you in the midst of your pain because you're already going through a lot, and I know you don't think you have the strength to shove that blame to the back burner and try and hold on to that and everything else. But I'm asking, I'm just pleading with you. Is there anyone here tonight willing to say, you know what, I, just this week, just for Job, I'm willing to set that blame aside just to see if there's a convincing answer that that might just not be God. Is there anyone willing to say, I, I'll, I'll give you that time. Show me if there's another answer. Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, whether we admit it or not, we all hurt. We're all going through stuff. Maybe it's not as bad as Job at this moment, or maybe we feel like it's worse. Father, we just need to make sense of it. We just we're angry. We're hurting. We just sometimes the only relief we seem to find is wallowing in our pain. We've been told that you're in control. We've been told that you love and you're looking out for us, and yet we're hurting. And it makes sense that you must be at fault. First of all, thank you that you're big enough to let us blame. You don't just smite us because you don't like that we're blaming you. But, Father, I just want to pray this week as we're going through Job, please give us the strength to do the impossible. Help us be willing to be open to another answer. We don't have to be sold on it yet. I'm not saying we have to give up our blame, but I'm just saying can we set it aside long enough to see if you can give us a better answer. Not just because the Bible said it, but one that though it says it, it makes sense. And we can see it with our own eyes. Be with us this week. May we have the answers to the question we seek. We're giving you that chance, Lord, and now we claim that you promised if we give you a chance, you'd speak. So give us an answer. Show us reality, please. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.